0: Hello there, and welcome to episode 16 of Sports in the Waiting Room. I'm your host, Chris Russo. Episode 16, we've gotten that far. I am recording this on Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. It'll be coming out on February the 17th. 87s will be playing tomorrow against the Protect Junior Ducks. So, just doing this in advance. Kind of a slower news week, sports-wise. I mean it kind of expected to be after I mean last week I talked for 40 minutes about the Super Bowl so it kind of makes sense things even out now a lot of free agency news hot stove in the MLB in particular and then the NBA's a little bit of discussion just just team, just surprising losses Celtics losing to the Wizards Nuggets losing Nuggets beating the Lakers Phoenix really making a big improvement this year and well and Anthony Davis getting hurt. I hope you had a nice week. Hope uh, you had a lovely Valentine's Day for those of you who are uh, spoken for. And if you are single, I hope you ate a lot because you deserve it. And same goes for uh, today is Fat Tuesday. So I hope I usually do a thing. I consider myself a Catholic, so for for, for Lent, I usually give up a I usually give up, I almost always give up desserts, so I have indulged in, my uncle sent something that was nice, he sent something called a pie caken, which is, it's something like, it's gotta be like a four, five, six layer, it's a pie and a cake, it's a pecan pie, a sweet potato pie, and like a layer of like a, a kind of a pumpkin, or maybe, maybe like a cinnamon sort of pumpkin buttercream frosting and cake, and it's that whole thing. And so I have indulged in that, uh, and tomorrow, or today, as you first listen to it on, this, on Wednesday, it, it is going to be the first day of a long struggle for me once again. Uh, but it's worked out in the past. So, anyhow, hope you are picking out and enjoying yourself just uh, coming off that Pigging out from the Super Bowl, and speaking of which, getting to we'll start with the NFL because I know, you know, NFL season's over, and yet still, I think there's one NFL story that, besides Anthony Davis getting hurt, probably dominated the headlines this week, and that was that J.J. Watt asked for and was granted his release by the Houston Texans after ten seasons. Now, there is uh, there's a lot of speculation as to where he'll go. I think there's an NFL article, the NFL.com article that listed like nine teams, nine potential suitors. Look, if I were him, I would only be considering maybe two places, maybe three. Because, what? I mean, it would make the most sense if he went to play for the Steelers, right? You've already got two brothers playing there. It would make such perfect sense. It's a team with. Can you imagine J.J. Watt and T.J. Watt on the same defensive line? I know J.J. has been hurt in the last couple of years, but oh my God, would that defense be scary? As if it wasn't already. And I know they collapsed against Cleveland in the playoffs, but that that that's frightening. Put those two on one defensive line. Seriously, you will have, and that will leave a lot of room. That would leave a lot of room. For, for the, the defensive tackles for, and uh, um, for the middle linebacker for for the middle of that defense to be able to come through because you're just going to be double teaming those guys all day, it's frightening. Now, that would make the most sense. You have T.J. playing defensive end. You have Derek at fullback, and it would make a ton of sense for J.J. J.J. You could actually play, could actually play with Derek too because remember JJ has a couple as a few receiving touchdowns in his career as, a, as a, like a like the extra lineman tight end theoretically he's actually he's built like he could be just a really big tight end if you look at him he's not you know he's not like a he's not a heavy set guy like like he's muscular but he's not a heavy set guy he he would make a lot of sense as a tight end but th- that's one i'd have to i'd have to imagine the front runner right now would be the Pittsburgh Steelers and if I were a Steelers fan, I'd be looking at I'd be looking at my boots, right? I, looking the chops? Looking my chops? I think that's... I don't know. It's probably an inappropriate phrase out of context. So, I don't know. I think that's what it is. Point is, if I were a Steelers fan, I'd be really excited. Second most likely, I would probably say would be the Green Bay Packers. Now, I looked it up. J.J. Watt... I know he's from Wisconsin. I know he played for the University of Wisconsin. He's actually a little bit closer to Chicago than he is Green Bay. But he... Apparently grew up a Packer fan. And I know Aaron Rodgers is apparently furious with the team, and understandably so, after, you know, they drafted Jordan Love, they made that questionable decision against Tampa Bay in the NFC Championship game to kick the field goal late, and Rodgers never got the ball back. So I understand why you'd be frustrated if you're Rodgers, and, you know, you want a receiver. But I feel like Aaron Rodgers is not a guy with a huge ego he's not a guy with a big ego. And if he can get JJ Watt on his defense, I think he'd be pretty excited. I don't know if it would be enough to 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 make him, you know, forgive the organization for I mean, the way they treated him in the last couple of years after all he's done for them, but I'd be pretty excited if I had if I had a better defense helping me out, think about it—the pack, the Packer defense let up 31 points to to Tampa Bay in the NFC Championship game. And so clearly, it's not just you know the receiving core that's an issue for Rodgers. If it is, you got Adams. I think he would probably rather, rather have a receiver. But if you put J.J. Watt in a Packer uniform, it's going to be good for his morale, and I think it would help Aaron Rodgers. Now, I do have a sleeper team here. It it wasn't mentioned in that NFL article, and of course I'll you know look I'll, I'll trust the the league sources first and foremost. But I sleeper team sleeper team I put the Denver Broncos in there. It might it might sound a little crazy because I don't know if, I don't know if they can afford him. But yeah, I forget I just put this out. JJ uh, Watt's wife is um, I I forget how you pronounce her first name. I think I think it's. I know it's spelled K K E A L I A, but Keila Kayla. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And she is, I think, a, I think she's a big soccer player. And she's from like the Salt Lake City area, which is not ter- the closest team to there would be Denver. Now, I I know this is just kind of speculation, but then again, the whole thing, free agency, everything is speculation, isn't it? But Denver might be a good spot. I understand J.J. Watt would want to play for a winner right now, and he'd have a better quarterback. Clearly, he'd have a better quarterback in Houston if you know, if they do plan on re- if they're not willing to trade to Sean Watson, and he's not, you know, going to kind of protest and say I'm, I'm going to sit down. He'd have a better quarterback in Houston than he would in Denver, but because uh, Drew Locke, I think it looked like for a second he was taking a step forward, but then he kind of took a step back later on in the year. But J.J. Watt would be one. I mean, you know, would make his family situation a little nicer. But he'd be playing next to Von Miller, and Von Miller is one of, if not the only, active players with active player with more sacks than J.J. Watt. I think they've played the same amount of... I think they came in the same draft class. I'm pretty sure they were both 2011. And Von, and Von Miller, yeah, he's coming off injury. But, I mean, if the Broncos roll the dice and you put those two guys together and you're able to figure some things out, I'm not going to say they're, they're going to be as good as Kansas City or, or maybe even as good as the Raiders or the Chargers, but that could... But if you roll the dice and it works out, that could really pay off. They're... It's a kind of a high risk, but that'd be a high reward. That's a potentially very high reward if you put those two guys together. I'm not sure you've ever seen two, long, well, maybe Jack Lambert and Jack Ham, but no two pass rushing, uh, no, no two edge rushers that good. No two pass rushers that good. I don't think you've ever seen play together. I don't believe. I, I, well, at least coming from different teams, at least coming from a uh, one coming from free, one coming over in free agency, because you had the you know the fearsome foursome and the uh, with the Ram, with the Rams, and you had um, Purple People leaders with the Vikings, and I forget what the name of that Cowboy defense was. I forget what the name of that Cowboy defense was with uh, I think it was Ed Tuttle Jones and Harvey Martin and Randy White. I forget I forget what they called that what they called that defense. But never have you, I don't think, seen a free agent departure that big where you have two edge rushers on each side that are that scary. I mean, I know Khalil Mack went went to Chicago, but there's nobody that was really his equal on that defense. So imagine J.J. Watt in a Bronco uniform. I think he's probably going, I would have to imagine he's going to Pittsburgh but those are but green bay is a possibility and i think denver is an out there's an outside chance now jj watt obviously departed in a pretty sad fashion if you're a, if you're a houston fan in particular or even if you're just a fan of uh, jj watt and you just want the guy to succeed um, after 10 seasons done in houston left because the organization had really screwed things up and that's really saying something because there was a lot of turmoil under under Bill O'Brien, and now that he's gone, there's, even, there's somehow even more. So, O'Brien, first off, he screwed up. He traded DeAndre Hopkins to Arizona for for what David Johnson in a first round and a pick or something like that. It's a terrible deal. And and some of us ne- only now realize that DeAndre Hopkins is the best receiver in the NFL. I knew he was top five when he was in Houston. I don't think I realized how good he truly was until he got to Arizona. But Bill O'Brien screwed that up. You know, he screwed up the, I mean, he had a 24-0 lead on the Kansas City Chiefs in the divisional round. And they, what was the one? Everybody forgets the, 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 the week before that when he went for, he went for it on fourth down against Buffalo, up three with like a minute to go. And which just leaves Buffalo the opportunity leaves Josh Allen the opportunity to march back down the field and force overtime and uh, you know and then 24 nothing in Kansas City you faked the punt with a 24 to 7 lead in your own end uh, at your own end of the f- in your own end of the field, which was a god a horrible idea and that gave Kansas City all the momentum came back somehow blew out the Texans even after down 24 points. Point is, the organization has screwed up a lot. Done a lot of bad things. And now, Deshaun Watson, unhappy, he wants out, they won't trade him. And J.J. Watt pretty much says, I'm done. I, I, I I can't play here anymore. I've committed 10 years to this organization, I can't play here anymore. But despite all that turmoil... I just want to take some time to point out why Houston fans in particular should should just look back on what great things JJ Watt did, not just for the Texans organization, but for the city of Houston. The city of Houston, as opposed to lamenting the way he is leaving the organization. J.J. Watt. All right, here's some of his his resume, if you put it that way. 101 sacks over 10 seasons, which is on a pace not far behind Bruce Smith, the all-time NFL sacks leader, and it also makes him the franchise leader in sacks. Now, granted, this is a franchise that has only existed for 19 seasons, but... 100 sacks. He's in like the top. Th- there are only like 30, got 25 or 30 guys at the most, I think, that have done that. He's all. He could be a Hall of Famer right now. I know people keep saying Patrick Mahomes is in the Hall of Fame right now. And eh, to be fair, he played four. He's played four years as a quarterback, whereas they have more longevity. J.J. Watt has played 10 years as an edge rusher, and he's got he's got more than 10 sacks a year. He is a Hall of Famer right now. He, he would not even have to go to another team. But that's just how much he has to prove. That's how much this guy has to prove how much he wants to win, how much he wants to win a championship. He would have loved to do it in Houston. Could you imagine bringing a Super Bowl to Houston, a city that has never seen it, a city that has never te- seen one of its teams reach the Super Bowl? The Oilers came really close a couple of times in the 70s and also in the, in the 90s under Warren Moon. But the Texans, you know, imagine that city with a championship. They are so football-crazy in Houston and probably envious of the five championships won by the Dallas Cowboys and, you know, their America's team. in Houston, even though it's the fourth-largest city in America and the, the largest city in the southern United States, uh, football-crazy, a great sports town, but they have not seen a championship. J.J. Watt, oh my God, J.J. Watt did so much for that city in spite of not winning a championship. It's almost like, if you ever seen Moneyball, what J.J. Watt did for that city is, the scene late in the movie, and Billy Beans considering, you know, am, am I going to go sign with the Red Sox and become the, the highest paid general manager in history, or am I going to stay in Oakland? And... Jonah Hill plays... He's supposed to be Paul DiPodesta, but he's uh, Peter Brand, who's like like a composite character of a couple of Bean's assistants. And he shows... I mean, you know it if you've seen the movie, but... shows this guy, Jeremy Brown. He's a catcher. He's like 240, 250 pounds. He's a big guy. He's a catcher for this minor league team for Oakland. And... Can barely run. So, gets a good hold of one. Gets a good hold of a pitch. Drives it in the left center. And all you see is Brown. And he, all you see is Brown himself. You don't see the baseball. And for once, he's going to try to go for two. He's going to try to go for two. He rounds first. And he's going to try to leg it out into a double. Trips and falls going around first base. And then he's so embarrassed he just goes diving back into first. And then he looks up and the first baseman from the opposing team along with everybody else lets him realize that the ball actually went 40 feet over the fence. Home run. And of course it's a metaphor for what Billy Bean was able to do. He recreated... He reinvented the game. He reinvented the way you scout players and the way you're able to run a baseball organization, even though he never brought a championship to Oakland as a GM. He hit a home run without even realizing it. That's what J.J. Watt did in Houston. He never won a championship. He never even got to the Super Bowl, never got to the AFC championship game. And yet what this guy did in 10 seasons with this organization is one of the most stunning things... That any athlete has ever accomplished. He seriously, in ten seasons, he is already a three-time Defensive Player of the Year. No other player has won more. Only two other players have also won three to, three Defensive Player of the Year awards. That's Lawrence Taylor, the greatest defensive player of all time, and I would argue probably top three player in the history of the game, and Aaron Donald, who is probably top two, at least, defensive tackle of all time, along with Mean Joe Green. J.J. Watt is at 101 sacks over 10 over ten years in Houston. And that's with guys in his face, too. I mean, seriously, he was by far the best player on this team every year. Uh, pretty much every year. Uh, pardon me, but some of the injuries and the way Watson has stepped up. five-time Pro Bowler, two-time NFL sacks leader. This team had never won a playoff game before J.J. Watt got to this organization. I don't believe they had actually made the playoffs until J.J. Watt joined the organization. And since then, they've made the playoffs I think either five or six times, and they've won four playoff games. All the success of this franchise can be traced back to the Houston Texans selecting J.J. Watt out of the University of Wisconsin in 2011. Now, Houston, a lot of success on the field. Not as much as they would have wanted in the postseason. But the most important thing is, and J.J. Watt will tell you this, he will tell you this, and he'll mean it. 2017 Walter Payton, NFL Man of the Year, For helping raise $37 million for Hurricane Harvey relief. Uh, look, I was here, I, I've lived here in northern New Jersey. I know we and um, look, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of privileged. I'm, for, I'm fortunate. I'm in, I guess you could call us upper, upper middle class. And, and uh, we live in a nice town, nice neighborhood and we have a, a house down the shore here in new here in new jersey down the shore so look we're fortunate enough to have a home let alone to have a, a couple of homes but i know what it was like for people around here it, two storms two hurricanes in consecutive years i know what it's like people have to to keep rebuilding i can only imagine what it's like for you know someone who has their only home maybe not even a great home, have it taken away from them. And J.J. Watt did so much for that city. He said, I I think he donated $100,000, and he said, I I, I think he initially donated $100,000 and said to people on social media, can can we match it? Can we get to $200,000? And because of the... uh, likeability of this guy and because of the kindness of the hearts of so many people who, who who wanted to be compassionate and help the people of the city of Houston he helped raise 37 million dollars for Hurricane Harvey relief and you know there's another thing with, with the city of Houston the city of Houston if you watch um, What's his name? Uh, well, there's a YouTuber, pretty famous, called um, kind of a not a family-friendly name exactly, but Urinating Tree, and he made a video. I think it was, I think the 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 byline was essentially Houston, the city that sold its soul. Pretty much, Houston lost out on all its other teams lost out with all its other teams because of what the Astros did in order to win their championship in 2017. Now, that's it, a team with a with as bad a public image as any right now in sports. And it's not going to be pretty when fans are allowed back in the stands. Well, in in, in the MLB. We've already got some fans back in the stands. And it's not going to be pretty at Minute Maid Park or at any other stadium in America when the Houston Astros come on the field. And honestly, rightfully so, considering what they did. At least the guys who actually cheated, not the guys who have come come in since then. No, like Michael Brantley is not you know not deserving of any of that. But that is a, a that is a team that is absolutely hated, even though everybody was really pulling for them and loved them back in 2017. Because it's a city that waited, you know they they hadn't won a champ. The the Astros hadn't won a championship in their fifty six year history, and the city of Houston was so ravaged by Hurricane Harvey, and you know you see this with a lot of teams. You see, uh, un- unfortunately, there are a lot of horrible things that happen. You see this with you know uh, the the Red Sox in back in two thousand thirteen after the Boston Marathon bombing, and that that Bruin that Bruins team that reached the finals in the in the weeks after everything happened um, it happens the the Yankees reaching the World Series after 9/11 but uh, a lot of people were pulling for Houston because they wanted to see that team win and they wanted to see that city win now regardless of what you think of that title now the saving race for that city sports scene was JJ Watt because, yeah, yeah. unfortunately, the, tech, the, the Astros did cheat their, way to, cheat their way to a championship. It's absolutely true. The title should be stripped. But what Watt did for the city, what the compassionate people did for that city, was as important as anything. Ultimately, we're telling sports is just another way to tell human stories. That's what happens sometimes with sports journalism, in particular. So, J.J. Watt, what he did for Houston was unbelievable. After 10 years, let's see if he can go win somewhere else. Now, uh, there is one more, well, technically two pieces of big news in the NFL this week, and that was that Mike and Marquise Pouncey retire together. Won a national championship together at the University of Florida. Identical twins, I believe it was. No, it was Marquise who went into the league a year earlier. Now, uh, historic, historic careers. I think Marquise is. If one of them going to the, if only one of them is going to the Hall of Fame, it's, it's got to be Marquise. I would think uh, Marquise. But Mike fine career, four Pro Bowl appearances over ten seasons. Seven with the... And that's even more impressive considering he didn't play with great teams. He played seven seasons with the Dolphins. Or make that... Yeah, seven with the Dolphins and three with the Chargers, who have not been... Well, 2018, they were really good. But the Dolphins and the Chargers, generally speaking, the well, Dolphins had not been great for over that seven-year stretch. Chargers had not been great for the last three, except for 2018. But Mike Pouncey... Did a lot with not a lot behind him. Made those teams look a lot better. So Marquise made a remarkable nine Pro Bowls over 11 seasons at center. Did not win a Super Bowl, which is, you think about it, that's it's surprising that it's been that long since the Steelers have actually won a Super Bowl. But he helped lead the Steelers to the Super Bowl and win the AFC Championship in his rookie season. And when you look at these guys, you know, obviously because they're offensive linemen, they're not as heralded. That's the thing you see. That's what you see. Offensive line is probably the the most underrated position in the NFL. One of the more underrated positions in sports, perhaps. Actually, kicker might be the most underrated, really. Um, But... Offensive line, you're very underrated. You don't get appreciated as much. The NFL, you think of the skill players. You think of quarterback first and foremost. And then you think of you think of a wide receiver. You think of a running back. Think of linebacker, corner, maybe you know, a good safety and a good pass rusher. You don't think as much about the offensive line. But these guys, even though, look, I'm not going to say they were as good a, a pairing as the two gentlemen I'm about to mention. But in terms of an offensive line, it may, they may be the closest the offensive line will ever get to Peyton and Eli Manning because these guys played so well. It's a shame that one of these guys couldn't move over to guard, and and because they both played center, and it's like you know you can never see Peyton and Eli play together because you can't have. It's not like it's not like that one season where Donovan McNabb and Michael Vick were just. Shuffled off every other play, and they were alternated. You can't you can't have two quarterbacks. You can't have on at the same time. You can't have two centers on at the same time. It would have been really cool to see these two guys play together. But a great careers for these guys. But the the downside to this is I don't know if he knew about this. Marquise's retirement is pretty big news for Ben Roethlisberger who loses his starting center of the last 10 seasons, excuse me, 11 seasons. And that's even bigger because Roethlisberger apparently intends to return. And I can't blame him. I talked about this a few weeks ago when the Browns knocked the Steelers out of the playoffs in the wild card round. round. And Steelers already having some decisions to make with juju they have a lot of free agents i mean will will they bring in jj watt you, you know is this team worth salvaging or is it time to to cut bait and start and start breaking down but if Roethlisberger's coming back then it seems like it's going to be the former and now there are some questions on the offensive line so that, that that's what we're going to going to have to figure out unfortunately That's what you have to take most from that situation right now is will Ben Roethlisberger be protected? And then again, that goes into the whole, you know, we focus on quarterbacks, wide receivers, skill position players more goes into that narrative and unfortunately leads into that. All right, we'll take a break here, come back in a moment, talk about the MLB hot stove situation, in particular, this Andrew Benintendi deal. All right, welcome back to Sports in the Rating Room. Now we're going to break down some of the MLB hot stove news. Most notably, I think it's probably fair to say the biggest story of the week, Red Sox trade Andrew Benintendi to the Kansas City Royals in a three-team deal. Red Sox receive Franchi Cordero and two players to be named later from Kansas City. They also receive minor league pitcher Josh. I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly. Winkowski from the Mets, and the Mets get minor league outfielder Khalil Lee from Kansas City. I don't know if any of these guys were very highly touted prospects, but I think again it's just a cat move for Boston. I I mean, you look at this organization—one of the best run organizations of the last, well, of all time. They're one of the top three or four most successful franchises in the history of baseball. But the and maybe the most successful of the last 15 20 years. But the funny thing out of all of this is just the way that they have broken down in the last 10 because they go from winning a pair of titles and then they break down pretty quickly. Manny Ramirez wants out, David Ortiz is the only real holdover. I think, from the O seventeen 17 to the 13-team. Well, uh, I excuse me, Dustin Pedroia and Jacoby Ellsbury. But Otherwise, they broke down a lot. But then between 13 and 18, they lose so much. They break down that team. They finish in dead it, They go from first to worst to first. I mean, we saw it in the early 90s. Well, I wasn't alive. But if you're a big baseball fan and you're older than me and you know in the early 90s, there was the worst-to-first World Series. The Braves and Twins both climbed out of the cellar and went to play in the World Series. And that's even funnier because the Twins had been to the World Series four years prior. But the thing with Boston is, it now, now it's almost consistent. You're, they're either on top of the world or they're in the cellar. And it's very strange. Now, kudos to them for winning their titles, but it, it's... I don't know, I, I just hope the MLB doesn't become like this where... It, it's it's all uh, you can only either win finish in first or dead last. This is this is uh, I'm hoping this does not become a Ricky Bobby league. And uh, the, it's really I mean the the fan base is obviously furious because they would not pay up for Mookie Betts and the Red Sox had I think the largest payroll in baseball and yet they wouldn't spend on Mookie Betts and yet they would bring back J D Martinez. So, I I don't know. Mookie Betts, who is is going to be in a Dodger uniform likely for the rest of his career, and if and when he goes into the Hall of Fame, it will be with the Dodgers. And he's already delivered them a title in in one year. And and now benintendi has gone. It's really—they've broken down that outfield. We're not sure what Jackie Bradley Jr. is going to do. I don't know whether he's coming back. And it's just really strange for the Red Sox in particular because— Red Sox, Boston is not a big market per se. It's not New York. It's not L.A. It's not Chicago, or you know, Houston, Dallas, Philly. It's it's an average market, but it's um, they have enough money that they have that that I I don't know why they're they're they've let these teams break down. I don't quite get it. I really don't, and. They're a team that can afford to spend. And yet they let these teams they let all these guys walk in their primes. They let Benintendi walk. They let Betts walk, and they didn't get a lot out of it. I like Verdugo, but they didn't get a lot out of that. They let they let they traded away price with Mookie. All these guys. I don't I, I don't really get it because the Red Sox, now I'm not gonna say they're the Yankees or the Dodgers where they could spend a lot of money. And 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 keep all their guys, and they can you know consistently go out and win in free consistently go out and win in free agency, but they have enough money that they can hold on to their biggest assets, and I just don't know why they're letting them go. Speaking of uh, speaking, of which the Dodgers re-signed Justin Turner, two years, thirty-four million dollars, with a twenty twenty-three club option. Good signing, of course. I now seventeen million is. I don't know, a little steep, but considering, I think that's more for for time spent with the Dodgers. I think that's a, a little bit of a of a hometown, you know, discount. You gotten used to the guy, and he finally was there to deliver you a championship. He, he had that big home run off John Lackey in the NLCS a couple of years ago against the Cubs. But uh, it's a guy who's been a key part of the Dodgers' success, and if they can afford him. I mean, seventeen, seventeen million is not bad. I, it's not terrible, especially considering what they spent on Mookie Betts. You know, if you if you can afford to to keep him for a couple more years, good for them. Uh, moving on in the National League West, though, there's a team that really is going to be dangerous, should be a threat to the Dodgers, and that is the San Diego Padres. And they made two fairly significant deals in their bullpen. One of their bigger weaknesses. Padres' biggest weakness last year is probably their pitching. And they've obviously improved upon that, and now they're improving upon upon their bullpen. They've signed Keone Kela, I believe, to a deal pending a physical. And they also got another ex-Pirate. They got got, uh, Mark Melanson, per sources. And I know Melanson is 37. He's a little older, so it's a little bit of a risk. I'm not sure how much money they paid for him, but these are two guys that are, Melanson has been around a long time, he's good, he's good, enough, good enough in the clubhouse, I, th- I think he know, I think he knows how to really make a run, and to get these guys fired up as if they're not already, it's a culture that's been brought in with, with Machado and Hosmer, but it's a team that should, re- it's a team, it's the team of the future, and a team that should be very dangerous in the NL West next year, almost any other division I might say to be the front runner to win, but because they have the Dodgers and the defending World Champions, it, it's they, they will be in the. Th- I'll say they'll be in the thick of things. Moving on to more local teams, the Mets. Uh, talk a little about, I'll talk a little bit about the Yankees, but more so about the Mets and particularly what they decided to do for spring training. So first off, they sign Tommy Hunter, former Oriole, and Mike Montgomery in a minor league deals. They designate Brad Brock and uh, Cor- Brad Brack and Corey Os- Oswalt for assignment, and I, they're probably going to be paying less. Not, not to mention, Seth Lugo will have right elbow surgery. He's expected to be out at least six weeks. Now, Lugo is, has been Lugo was kind of a swing man, really. He's the saving grace of that. He's been the saving grace of that bullpen. Obviously, Edwin Diaz had a a. A year that I think was worthy of Comeback Player of the Year in the National League. So I think the back end of that bullpen is a lot more secure. Now, Lugo, they'll have to wait. It says six weeks, so expect him back by... Uh, apparently, it's a kind of a, a fragile six weeks, so probably have him back a little after opening day. So they'll have to be careful with him. But I like these deals, Hunter and Montgomery to minor league deals, because there are two guys who have pitched in the major leagues for a long time. Mike Montgomery, of course... Was a solid reliever for the Cubs. Got the save in Game 7 of the World Series in Cleveland back in 2016. Tommy Hunter, good. Similar skill set, really, to to Seth Lugo. Different build, obviously, but a similar skill set because he can be a good swing man. Tommy Hunter, I believe, also was on that Cubs team, at least for part of that season. Good swing man, good fit starter at times, but a good middle reliever, and they're probably not spending too much money on those guys, Brock is getting older, Oswalt, I I guess they probably expected they were going to have to spend more money on him, but I like the deals, they're good, they're good, and cheaper deals, I know obviously you're thinking, you know, Steve Cohen is going to be out there to to spend more, but though they probably have not spent as much as people would think, uh, they've done a good job. They've done a good job in free agency this year and on the trade market, I think, for the most part. Now, the Mets, uh, just a a few of their non-roster invitees of note. I think they made something like somewhere between 25 and 40 non-roster invitees, I believe, to Port St. Lucie for spring training. So a few notable ones. Tim Tebow, and look, I don't know. Look, Tim Tebow's already 33. He's not going to have a Hall of Fame career. Uh, but, but he, I would love to see him make the major league roster at some point, just for the entertainment value, and just to see how he can do. He didn't. He, he's hit. I think he's been like a two hundred hitter at Double A, and now that doesn't really that doesn't really get you to the major leagues. But I mean, if he really impresses them, I'd love. I'd love. To, I, I know that this team isn't as much about selling tickets anymore. Uh, be, well, the thing is, if you win, you sell tickets. But it, it's not like you know you just gimmicks anymore to, to to try to sell the Tebow. The Wilpons are gone. Co- Steve Cohen's in. They're willing to spend some money. But I would love to see Tim T. Te- I I think a lot of people would love to see Tim Tebow make the Major League roster just to see if he can prove himself, just to see if he can do something. Uh, because, obviously, he's gotten to a double-A. He's gotten, he's gotten a double-A, but I don't think it's just a publicity stunt there. I think he probably is talented enough, a good enough pure athlete to reach double-A level, but I would really like to see what he could do at the major league level. Uh, some other notable non-roster invitees, Malik Smith uh, from Tampa. Mets bring back Jerry Blevins, would, so I think that's a good move, and another guy who would improve their bullpen. Brandon Drury, former Yankee, former Blue Jay, former Diamondback, and who could provide some depth at uh, third base, and I think he plays some second base as well, and occasionally... Shortstop, also Jose Peraza. Uh, so, uh, a few pretty notable non-roster invitees for the Mets to spring training, which starts, I think it starts Friday. And I think the Yankees start, uh, well, what would be today when this comes out, which will be February 17th. The Yankees, by the way, signed Jay Bruce to a minor league deal. That is an interesting one. They get the former Mets. And, one, if you're a Yankee fan and you hate the Mets, that's probably a fun one because the Mets made sort of a notorious deal. They traded Jay Bruce to Seattle. And, of course, he later went on to still produce with the Phillies. And then, you know, they got Robinson Cano. Robinson Cano got busted for steroids again. And he got hurt again. And Edwin Diaz collapsed in the first year. But, uh, so... I mean, that's one thing if you're a diehard Yankee fan and you really hate the Mets, that that really sticks it to the Mets. But the, look, if if Jay Bruce is able to still play at a major league level, look, they could use him as a designated hitter. God knows the Yankees have too many designated hitters in the first place, but Jay Bruce can play, he can still play some outfield, and he'll be playing in the National League, in the American League again, he'll have the opportunity to DH, and he has a swing that's perfect, of course, for a very short short porch and right field at Yankee Stadium. It's a a left-handed hitter. It makes makes a lot of sense if he's able to get up to the major league level. Plus, he signed him to a minor league deal. So, I mean, there's not as much risk to it, clearly. Now, I'm just going to wrap up the show with some NHL discussion and some NBA discussion. NHL, not a lot to discuss this week in terms of Uh, movements, player movements. One thing was that Cedric Paquette and Alex Galchenyuk were traded to the Carolina Hurricanes in exchange for Ryan Dezingle. Now, Dezingle played about three years, I believe, with the Senators in the first place, then went to Columbus. Now he's back in Ottawa. Look, I know know Galchenyuk is not what he was in Montreal, and Paquette isn't necessarily what he was in Carolina. He's a fourth, I mean, in uh, Tampa Bay, he's a fourth-line guy. But I really don't know if Ryan Dezingle has improved enough to the point where you trade both of these guys for him. Um, I I don't know. I don't I don't quite get it. You trade you trade those two guys just to get him back. Uh, now part of it, both of these guys were free agents. Obviously, they came from different teams, so it's it's more like you just signed, kind of re-signed De- Dezingle, essentially. But I, I really, I, I don't really understand this move. I know people talk a lot about the ineptitude, of the front office, well, particularly ineptitude of Ottawa ownership under Eugene Melnick. And look, I'm not going to claim to know everything about this deal and to know the reasoning behind it. But I, I think this is a micro points it out in a microcosm. Just, just a, a small has a little bit to do. With that ownership, I don't know. Ottawa. Is sti- the point is, Ottawa is still last in the Eastern Conference, or at least, in, well, excuse me, last in last in the Canada Division. Remember, it's a weird year, so I don't really know what this does for them. I because I mean, not, for neither of these teams is it really a rebuilding move. Hurricanes again. Two years ago, the Hurricanes were. Off to the Eastern Conference Finals, surprising year for them. For them, this is a good, good move because this adds a lot of depth, adds, adds depth to scoring. Cedric Paquette, good kind of pesky winger. Galchenyuk able to work more at the front of the net. I think it's a good, a good depth move for them. But for Ottawa, I don't, I don't really get it. Uh, now on the other side of the, well, on the other side of Ontario, the Toronto Maple Leafs entered Monday at Monday, the, what was that, February 15th, as the NHL's best team, and the thing is, the last few years, the Maple Leafs you've seen as a team that has overwhelmed people offensively and has had a lot of hype, particularly because of Austin Matthews, because they went out and signed John Tavares, a few, they re-signed Nylander, a few, Mitch Marner, a few, a few different things. Their forwards, in particular, but they've been underwhelming defensively. Frederick Anderson has not been outstanding, and they don't do that well in the postseason. They haven't really made that next stride, and now it seems like they've finally started to do so. Now, if you look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, they have the second longest drought, well, second longest drought by seasons in the history of the National Hockey League, and they are now tied for the longest drought by years. Stanley Cup drought, I mean. 54 years they have waited, the same as the New York Rangers between 1940 and 1994. The difference is, with this team, you've had the one lockout year in 0405 when nobody played for the Stanley Cup, so it's 53 seasons. But, I mean, Hockey, hockey's big in New York, it's big in the United States, but we know that it's even bigger in Canada. It's Canada's sport. And Toronto is, the hockey media there is as brutal as the media in any other sport within New York, within Chicago, within Los Angeles, perhaps. And the, the Toronto, at least with the Rangers, the Rangers made it to the finals, I think three maybe four times in that in that 54 year span between the Stanley Cup uh, uh, titles Toronto has not made it back to the finals since 1967 they they probably should have been there in 93 with that uh, that bad non-call on uh, Gretzky's high stick on Doug Gilmore in game 7 of the Campbell Conference fi- uh, the conference final but uh, you yeah, know they they never got back and that's as I mean, for as big as hockey is in Toronto in particular, it's the biggest media market in Canada. It's the largest city in Canada. It's larger than uh, probably all, but I think two cities in the United States. It's a major deal. It's as big a deal as as... Hockey, unfortunately, is not as popular in the United States as it is in Canada. And the Maple Leafs not winning the Stanley Cup in that long in Toronto is the equivalent of... You know the Red Sox waiting eighty six years, the Cubs waiting hundred and eight years, the Rangers winning waiting fifty four years. Um, Cleveland is another one. The, the The baseball team has waited for so long. It's it, it's that kind of disappointment and waiting that that is just that is just accumulated in Toronto, like a heavy fine snow. And the Maple Leafs finally, defensively, have started to turn things around. And that's why I think they're actually among the best teams in the league this year. Because the last few years they've finished, you know, they've been like the fifth or sixth best team in the conference. And maybe they'll make maybe they'll make a series out of it in the first round. They took the Bruins to seven games. And they took, I think, the Caps to six, to six games before they got Tavares. But now they can finally play well defensively. They entered Monday tied for sixth in the NHL and second in the Canada division, with a 2.53 goals against per game, and now 2.53 goals against per game. That's not outstanding, but I think it's also a more offensive year in the NHL. Let's remember, it's also a weirder year, different conditioning, clearly, but the Maple Leafs can finally do so, and maybe that maybe that's finally what they need to to get over the hump. Truth is, if you're Toronto, you're facing some difficult teams in Canada division. Calgary in particular, Montreal's made some strides, Edmonton and Winnipeg are still there, and Vancouver made some big strides last year. Pretty much everybody except Ottawa is good in that division. But the fact is, with the Maple Leafs only having to play in Canada, remember, no Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup since Montreal did back in 1993. It's been 28 years since a Canadian team won the Cup. They've fallen off the map a little bit. And so maybe... look. If But if you're Toronto, if you can prove that you can beat the Canadian teams on a consistent basis, maybe you can do that with the American teams. This is almost like practice. Because the Maple Leafs should make the playoffs. But when you're Toronto, you're not facing... You're not exactly facing the class of the NHL. You're not facing teams that have won in the last couple of years. You're not facing, uh, well, Tampa Bay for one, St. Louis the year before. You're not facing Washington. You're not facing the Bruins. You're not facing Pittsburgh. Uh, I, you know, Colorado, Dallas. You're not facing some of the better, a lot of the better teams in the league. So there's still a lot to prove, but it's finally a way where it's finally a time where Toronto can actually play to its strengths in the defensive end. Finally. All right, we're going to take one more break, and then we'll wrap up the show with some NBA discussion here on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, going to wrap up the show here, talking talking about the NBA, starting with the local stuff a little bit. Most importantly for the New York Knickerbockers, Mitchell Robinson, starting center out four to six weeks with a fractured hand. Heard it in the game with the Rockets this past week. Now, it seemed it seems last game it worked out. Obviously, it's going to be a a struggle for the Knicks, but they pulled out a win over the Atlanta Hawks, a real shootout. Julius Randle with his most points ever as a Knicks, second most of his career. I believe he had 42 on the game. And it was an interesting way to put it because they had... The Knicks have some options. They have Nerlens Noel, they have Taj Gibson, who they just signed, And then they have Randall. if they want. They can play small ball. And Randall is kind of a... He's both a four and a five. He's a forward and a center. And he can play some center, but he can shoot from the outside. So it's worked out for the Knicks. The Knicks are actually 14 and 15 and are only a half game out of the four seed as I record this. Believe it or not, only a half game back in the Indiana Pacers. And I think... A game back, maybe a game and a half back of the Nets, believe it or not. Or uh, er, speaking of uh, that Eastern Conference, the Celtics with a surprising loss, they fall to the Washington Wizards by 13 points. They trailed by about 25 earlier in that in that game. Now I know you can say you know, Marcus Smart was out, but I mean his absence is not an excuse. Even earlier this year, the Celtics had that game with the the Knicks where they got destroyed in Boston, where Jason Tatum was out. Now, I know Jason Tatum is probably more important to that team's success than Marcus Smart is, but it was a, uh, I mean, not an excuse. There are, you know, you you have to wonder what the Celtics really are and if they can live up to that lead they had in the conference finals, that team they were up until, what, game six of the conference finals last year against Miami. So... I, I don't know, and apparently Kemba Walker has made some critical comments about the team, it's not a good look for the organization, it's not a good look for Brad Stevens, and Walker is the guy who is usually, I mean, the Celtics, you know, there there are guys who are, none of these guys are really that controversial, Marcus Smart's had some controversy in the past, past but Kemba Walker's usually a pretty quiet guy, for the most part, so, if if that's a problem, then there there have to be some significant problems with the uh, there have to be some significant problems uh, with the Celtics this year. You have, you have to take a real look at them because they're even behind Philadelphia. They're behind Milwaukee. Not as much was expected of the Sixers this year, but they're trailing them. Moving over to the Western Conference, the Nuggets topped the Lakers by seventeen points this week. And kind of that's more of an excuse. Anthony Davis leaves leaves with a strained Achilles. He'll be reevaluated in two to three weeks, and that leaves open a lot of room in the Western Conference and a, and a lot of uh, a lot of ability to gain ground. Lakers aren't even the one seed at the moment. It's the Utah Jazz, but leaves some room for the Clippers to gain gain ground. And potentially for Phoenix to gain ground, especially in that Pacific Division. So, a little surprisingly, Phoenix may be the most improved team in the NBA this year. They're up to, I believe, the four seed as the time I record. At the time I record this, Denver. It's funny. Nick, uh, Jokic has had a few really outstanding games where his team has just not supported him, and now they play the Lakers of all teams and win uh, uh, when they get a performance from him, and it's just. Strange, from that Rocky Mountain area, there are a couple of teams that finally could get over the top, and that's Utah and Denver, two teams that gave an outstanding conference semifinal series last year. Uh, the Nets win Kevin Durant's return to Golden State by 17 points. Durant has been kind of in and out off the off the bench. There was the COVID protocol, and I might be hurt again, uh, but he's still I mean, the most consistent player on the floor for the Nets when he is on the floor. And I know there's no Clay Thompson, but the fact that they won by 17 in San Francisco is a promising sign. But again, this is a Nets team that really plays up to that really plays up to their better competition, and they play down to their worst competition. It's a very strange situation. Uh, we'll see where we go from there. And lastly, I mean, it, it shows that the Eastern Conference is, I think, still weaker. But it shows that there's a lot. Uh, a lot more parity and uh, that teams are a lot closer. The Eastern Conference's top 10 teams entering Monday were separated by only six and a half games. So it's stunning to see that with, with the, I think the Sixers are one and the Hawks that close behind. I, some of it I think is injury-related, obviously, and the Nets are kind of... Um, Turbulent. A lot of people expected them to be higher, especially after Harden was traded. But it, it the Eastern Conference playoffs should be very, very exciting this year. I, I think it's I, we saw some of this last year. I think when Miami made a surprising run. Miami has had an off year, but they're still in it. They are still very much in it, and the play-in. What I actually now want I could not have cared less for the about the play-in in the Eastern Conference. But now I kind of want it. I kind of want to see it because there are going to be some teams that that could maybe not make it to the NBA finals, but could maybe win a round or two that come out of that uh, that come out of that little bubble that six ten bubble that whole that seven ten bubble that whole seating. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate the the, the few proud people who have. Turned in um, through 16 episodes here on Sports in the Waiting Room, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.